Content warning. Religious oppression, residential schools, bloodshed, terrorism, war, and suburbanites. Action! Excitement! Horror! Romance! Thrills and chills! Swords and sorcery! Rockets and ray guns! A dizzying canopy of the strange and impossible from the darkest depths of the human imagination! What mad universe encompasses such tales as these? Join us as we bear witness to the sweeping sprawl of all the history that never was and all the futures that could yet be. It's adventure as you like it on What What Mad Universe. Suppose I am God, said the voice, and suppose I made the world in idleness. Suppose the stars that you think eternal are only the idiot fireworks of an everlasting schoolboy. Suppose the sun and moon to which you sing alternately are only the two eyes of one vast and sneering giant, opened alternately in a never-ending wink. Suppose the trees in my eyes are as foolish as enormous toadstools. Suppose Socrates and Charlemagne are to me only beasts, made funnier by walking on their hind legs. Suppose I am God, and having made these things, laugh at them. And suppose I am man, answered the other, and suppose that I give the answer that shatters even a laugh. Suppose I do not laugh back at you, do not blaspheme you, do not curse you, but suppose, standing up straight under the sky, with every power of my being, I thank you for the fool's paradise you have made. Suppose I praise you with a literal pain of ecstasy, for the jest that has brought me so terrible a joy, if we have taken the child's games and given them the seriousness of a crusade, if we have drenched your grotesque Dutch garden with the blood of martyrs, if we have turned a nursery into a temple, I ask you in the name of heaven, who wins? Good afternoon, welcome to uh, What Mad Universe. Uh, as always, I am Adam Prosser, and with me is Philip Rice. Hi. Hello. Uh, today we're looking at... Uh, uh, a book I really enjoy. It's actually a bit of a favorite of mine. Um, it's uh, The Napoleon of Notting Hill by G.K. Chesterton, Gilbert K. Chesterton, um, which was written in or published in 1904. Uh, and it is, um, Chesterton was, I guess these days he's best known for the Father Brown novels. He also wrote The Man Who Was Thursday. Um, he was a bit of an influence on C.S. Lewis. Um and, uh, you know, he's, he's a bit of a, uh, he was a very religious writer. Uh, he was Catholic and he wrote a lot of, uh, Christian apologia as well as fiction. And, um, so yeah, he's, he was also apparently, uh, beloved of, uh, Marshall McLuhan, if you can believe it. Um, okay. yeah. So there were a lot of people who, uh, you know, and he's, you know, pretty well known and, and thought of fairly highly. He's not generally thought of as a fantasy sci-fi writer, but he did write, um, I mean, this book is technically science fiction and there's one or two other books he wrote that would be considered fantasy or sci-fi um, because this one's set in the future. Um, now it's, 
almost explicitly <laughs> avoiding being sci-fi, and yet it is, uh, as we can talk about in a moment. Oh, it should also, this is his first book, right? Uh, yeah, it does seem to be his first major published work. work. Um, okay. Yeah, okay, so he did, he did journalistic work, he did, um, uh, you know, he wrote criticism, he was an art critic, a literary critic, uh, so he was, you know, he'd been writing as a reporter for a while before he did this. But yes, you're right. It's uh, it's his first major fictional work and his first major uh, work. I, ha I actually have a collection of all his novels, and it's the first one. So I guess they're in chronological order. So there you go. Um, but yeah. So what what did what did you think of this, Phil? You uh, you. Um, it was uh, very interesting. Um, yeah, it's it, it's complicated in its themes because uh, there's stuff right. I I was sort of made uncomfortable by. Mm -hmm. Um. Uh, yeah, he can, he can be, he, he, it's uncomfortable for sure. Uh, his philosophy, uh, was not my own and probably not yours and probably really not, it's it, not the philosophy of anyone, most people nowadays, like if you really broke it down, it would probably be pretty reactionary. Uh, but the funny thing about him was he was very, um, whimsical and very, I guess, open-minded. Uh, that's something you see a bit with C.S. Lewis as well where he's writing in defense of a very, you know, a backward-looking tradition, kind of an old-fashioned, very small-c conservative tradition. Um, <clears throat> but he's also, you know, he has an active mind and imagination and can engage very cleverly with art and literature and theology. And um, and as a result, and partly like in this book, for instance, he comes around to viewpoints that we would classify as pretty... Uh, pretty liberal, even semi-radical, uh, certainly com considering that it was written 100 years ago. Um, <laughs> so mm -hmm. that's the weird thing about this book. It's kind of like how J.R.L. Tolkien, um, he, um, you know, he wrote, he, he was kind of an environmentalist in some ways, uh, even mm -hmm. though he was, you know, a very conservative, uh, religious guy, an old-fashioned old person in many ways but he loved nature and he loved and he sort of he wrote against industrialization and against uh the the onrushing um tide of modernity i guess mm -hmm. so it, it and that and it became a, you know hippies started loving his book for that reason essentially yeah. right so um but uh just uh sort of the the nationalism of the story is a little uncomfortable especially in modern contexts yeah, well, that, that's um, one and of the, the things the, that's interesting. Sorry, go on. Because uh, it, it's born out of violence. Like, people die in this. It's written very whimsically, but, you know, there's, like, mm -hmm. human cost within the story. Right. Um, yeah, there's a sense of, yeah. It, it, well, the, the funny thing about that is he's a nationalist, um, and yet the irony is that he sort of defends other you know, even though he's writing from the heart of the British Empire, he's sort of defending other countries' right to nationalism as well, right? Like he's, he's uh, yeah, he, yeah, that's definitely there because um, when uh, Notting Hill wins the uh, the war of '94, uh, I guess um, they don't uh, try to conquer anybody else, right? Well, it, well, more than that, at the be very beginning of the story, it starts with him praising, or or rather, I guess, lamenting uh, uh, Nicaragua. 
which has been, you know, it's been read. <clears throat> I should explain the story here. It starts, it, it's set in uh, the future, uh, which he explicitly goes uh, <laughs> into an explanation about how uh, very little has changed. Society has become very stagnant from where it was in 1904, um, except that, you know, essentially the British Empire or the Western values have taken over everywhere. Uh, uh, yeah, it mentions great empires. So it seems like all the countries in the world are controlled by a select few uh, mm -hmm. empires. Right. It's again. It's sort of, and again, we'll talk about this in a bit. But it's kind of, it's it's kind of an early vision of globalization and and uh, you know the world just becoming alike everywhere you go. And it literally starts with them meeting the former president of Nicaragua. They they they're a little vague about it, but they imply that Nicaragua had a bit of a revolution that failed, and the prime uh, the president was deposed, and now he's living in London, <laughs> and. Um, he talks about how, oh, well, there were specific things about my country and our culture that were great and wonderful, and they're lost now because Nicaragua is like everyone else. It's, quote, civilized, unquote. And uh, the way it's written, uh, Chesterton is very clearly sympathetic to the idea of a country that gets sort of taken over by the West. Uh, there's a specific uh, passage, which I'd like to read here, which I really enjoyed. Um, hang on. just Okay. Uh, so the president of Nicaragua says, when you say you want all peoples to unite, you really mean that you want all peoples to unite to learn the tricks of your people. If the Bedouin Arab does not know how to read, some English missionary or schoolmaster must be sent to teach him to read. But no one ever says, this schoolmaster but does not know how to ride on a camel. Let us pay a Bedouin to teach him. You say your civilization will include all talents. Will it? Do you really mean to say that at the moment when the Eskimo has learned to vote for a city council, you will have learned to spear a walrus? I recur to the example I gave. In Nicaragua, we had a way of catching wild horses by lassoing the four feet, which was supposed to be the best in South America. If you are going to include all the talents, go and do it. If not, permit me to say what I have always said, that something went from the world when Nicaragua was civilized. I mean, that's a very, like, enlightened, even by modern standards, <laughs> viewpoint. Like, that's... Yeah, that's, that's a I good mean, point. Um, uh, it reminds me of... Um, uh, attitudes around, say, uh, residential schools for Native people in Canada. Um, yeah, exactly. You know, sort of, um, uh, not sort of, but, yeah, driving the, the their own culture out of them and forcing them to assimilate by uh, by threat of violence. Right. And it is, it is very interesting because the story itself is set in, like, it, it's sort of set in the mindset of a comfortable uh, British person's, you know, upper middle class British person's uh, world where, you know, the rest of the world is kind of hazy. Uh, and he literally establishes this is what the whole world is like and revolutions have died down. There's no revolutions anymore because everyone's happy with how it is. But he talks about it from the point of a British person. And if it was just that, you'd say, well, Chesterton had a very narrow view of life. But then he literally confronts you right at the beginning with well, here's someone whose culture was annihilated by that, and they're talking about how you guys have taken all this for granted. He literally spells it out in that, in so many words. Um, so it's it, it's right from the start, it's confronting what he says in the first chapter, where, oh, the world's the same, nothing has changed, uh, progress won't uh, advance, the world will always just be like this, and then this guy's saying, well, what's the world? It's the world that the British people like, in your case, or I guess Americans, you know, the, the major powers, um, mm. you know, and taking for granted that they'll always be there, and that they'll always be, you know, powerful, essentially. Um, um, 
uh, going back a bit at the at the very beginning when it has uh, it talks about other writers' predictions for the future. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I found that really amusing that um, uh, people just take what's happening now and just extrapolate it. So what's happening right. now, but more so. So that's what H.G. Yeah. Wells did and what Jules Verne did, and you know. Um, yeah. Well, and, I mean, um, even 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 today, that's what people do. They're always. Yeah. It's always if this uh, goes on, you know. We'll all have, yeah, uh, the know. cyberpunk uh, uh, thing in the '80s and, and '90s. It's um, a lot of it's very dated, even already. So, right. I mean, some of it's come true, it's but act- you know. Yeah, it's well. It's actually interesting that you bring up cyberpunk because that was. I know we, we were talking about last week or last time about Nova. Um, where, where that was kind of a forerunner cyberpunk. In a weird way, I almost feel like this novel has some very, very early tenuous ties to cyberpunk, not with in terms of the technology, because Chesterton does not care about, you know, technology or high-tech things at all. It's been but utterly in, unchanged. If anything, it's regressed a bit. Right, right. But but in this case, he... Um, but but the, uh, the vision of globalization is something that uh, affects a lot of cyberpunk stories. And uh, so some of the themes he's dealing with here become relevant uh, in cyberpunk novels when they deal with, you know, the idea of, like, because Chesterton doesn't specifically say capitalism has taken over the world. But that's sort of, you can sort of imply from what he's got. Because he's, even though he says there's still a king and in fact a despotism uh, of controlling England and presumably a large portion of the world. Uh, he also mentions that the king is kind of a functionary. He just signs papers that are put in front of him, right? <laughs> he doesn't yeah. he, he doesn't uh, he doesn't actually have that much power or rather there's not that much power that needs to be exercised because everyone's sort of content. everything's just sort of going along to get along as it were, which implies mm-hmm. a heavy you know uh, neoliberal capitalist society essentially. Uh, yeah. Um, also, the the central conflict is about building a road through a community. That's right. Yes, exactly. Yeah, he says um, uh, the populace has a a, um, a hobby in uh, confounding the prophecies that people make, and uh, nowadays there's so many prophecies that you'll have to uh, you'll have to go with one of them. But uh, the people of the uh, year 1984. Uh, which is when the novel starts out, uh, did confound those prophecies because nothing's really changed. Right. <laughs> like, yes. Technology <laughs> is the same. People dress the same. You know, it's just right. the same, but more so. <laughs> yeah, that's him. Yeah, that's uh, as always with Chesterton. He'd like he'd follow an idea he found amusing, and I almost feel like that was just his weird joke that he decided to follow through on for the rest of the novel, uh, even though it's actually not, it's not even technically true because things no, kind of have changed, yeah. <laughs> but he's, he just basically says, you know, he's talking about, and I'm sure there were a lot of people like this in the 19th century where, you know, people would say, well, in the future, we'll all stand on our heads because it'll be, you know, it'll increase the circulation to our brain power and therefore we'll be, you know, super evolved intelligences. It's it's that kind of mindset, which, uh, you know, the, the, the late Victorian era uh, definitely seemed to embrace as the idea of and, and then followed through into American culture in the 20th century of, well, we're going to keep evolving. We're going to become super beings and all of the stuff that we're doing now is going to take us, you know, into the future and 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 make us better than we are. And, but it's all going to be based on our technology now advancing in a direct line. And he, and he comes up, Chesterton comes up with all these deliberately ridiculous examples of that. Like, 
everyone becoming a vegetarian, which was which was popular at the time. Vegetarianism was a big thing in the in, in that era, uh, and, as and it was seen as an you know an advancement of mankind, not to eat meat anymore. So now he's saying like now there then there were people who said you know no more no more eating vegetables because it's cruel to the plants and we can <laughs> subsist entirely on salt, and then. He, he said there was going to be someone came coming along saying, why should salt suffer, basically, right? Um, I'm a level nine vegeta- uh, vegan. I only eat things that uh, don't cast a shadow. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. Oh, I also want to uh, draw attention to the first line of the, the story, which is really good. Uh, the human race to which so many of my readers belong. <laughs> yes. That's just a great line. Yeah, yeah. Chesterton's a very witty writer. Uh, he's got a very elegant uh, prose style that's very funny. It is, and it is interesting because that that whole first chapter, which is almost a nice little standalone joke of a sto- uh, of a mini story in and of itself in predicting the future, um, it it sort of sums him up because he is having a joke and he's he's being ridiculous uh, and mocking the concept of modernity. Uh, that kind of, that's Chesterton in a nutshell. He, he's very whimsical and witty and, uh, you know, has a, not postmodernist, but a very sort of, uh, ridiculous view on life while reinforcing a bit of an old fashioned view of life and saying, you know, uh, we should, we should, uh, appreciate, you know, the traditions and not, and, 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 the, the march of progress is ridiculous and silly and let me mock it. Not that he wasn't above, you know, making fun of and, and having jokes about older styles of life, but he tended to revere that in a way that, you know, he would, he would mock modern life in a way. And there's like, there's quotes of his where uh, he says, which gets shared by like right wing people these days where he says things like, well, it's become very disreputable to be a Christian these days. And, you know, this, the, this, the kind of, the, you see the victimhood that, that emerges from a lot of these guys uh, coming out in his writing. But he had a sense of humor about it, at least. He was a little more, um, a little more willing to, to embrace uh, silliness. He kind of, th- that's actually sort of what the book is about. It's about the reverence of silliness and nonsense and not taking yourself too seriously. But in a same, in, by the same token, you could almost say he's, he's almost got a South Park attitude in some ways of, you know, it's silly to have passion to improve the world. Ha 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 ha. Uh, let's all go back to medieval Catholicism, <laughs> you know, in a way that was his worldview. So it's a little, yeah. it does get a little bit uncomfortable when you get into it. Uh, um, so the story itself, like we said, it starts off in the year 1984, which, uh, as an aside, has been suggested that that was the uh, inspiration for the title of Orwell's famous novel, though mm-hmm. there's, that's disputed, of course. There's other theories, um, mm-hmm. and it's not quite clear where that came from, but that's that's one thing that's put out there. Um, mm-hmm. uh, most of the action actually takes place 10 years later in 94, and there's a coda at the end It's set in... Uh, 2014 so right and uh, yeah. yeah that's right it jumps forward it's it actually spans a fairly large period of time um but the the premise basically is that so one thing that has changed about this world is they don't have uh, a primogeniture for uh, picking the monarchs of england anymore they just um they they ra- basically randomly select someone to be king of england every time not basically that that's it they just uh, people are chosen at random with the uh, idea that uh, um, democracy is based on the idea that uh, uh, 
uh, any idiot, you know, can have uh, um, a share of the power. So why not just give, you know, make it efficient and give just some random idiot all of the power? Right. And, and that's, a, that's a good example of what I'm saying, where he's not above mocking tradition as well, because he points out that, well, being the child of a king doesn't give you any inherent powers, and everyone realizes this nowadays. It's essentially random. It's just been transferred genetically. So why not pluck a random person out of the, uh, out of the ether to be king? Uh, I, actually, I'll read. Uh, there's a, there's a, uh, a segment of the book here I'll, I'll read. It says, we are, this is the guy defending to the Nicaraguan president the current system. Uh, we are, in a sense, the purest democracy. We have become a despotism. Have you not noticed how continually in history democracy becomes despotism? People call it the decay of democracy. It is simply its fulfillment. Why take the trouble to number and register and enfranchise all the innumerable John Robinsons when you can take one John Robinson with the same intellect or lack of intellect as all the rest and have done with it? The old idealistic Republicans used to found democracy on the idea that all men were equally intelligent. Believe me, the sane and enduring democracy is founded on the fact that all men are equally idiotic. <laughs> anyway, and so on. But And now the character speaking is not necessarily reflective of Chesterton, but um, he is, again, he's kind of just, he's doing a, oh, it's all such a ridiculous, the world is such a ridiculous system kind of thing. Um, mm -hmm. but, uh, so yeah. But the person who's selected as king uh, in 84 is somebody who takes nothing seriously, just jokes all the time, mm -hmm. uh, which is uh, uh, the appropriately named uh, uh, Oberon Quinn. Um, Oberon, of course, being, um, it, it's spelled differently, but the uh, King of the Fairies in Shakespeare, and mm -hmm. um, it, uh, it predates Shakespeare, but yeah, it's popularized by that. Right. And I mean, he he actually makes an explicit reference to the fairies yeah. at one point in the book. Yeah. Oh, uh, a couple times, but yeah, it actually uh, draws him back to uh, to uh, Shakespeare's Oberon at one point as well. Yeah. yeah. Um. He uh um uh comes after he's um declared king uh at random again. Um. He comes across a child on the street playing, you know, as a knight, and um he uh ingests, salutes the kid, you know, and does um uh you know, sort of condescends to him that he's a great hero and all that and talks in sort of medieval type uh, uh, grand speeches about nobility and all that. Mm -hmm. um, and that inspires him to uh, to remake the um, uh, character of London. So all the little boroughs in London, um, he sort of made up a new history for each one of them. So they're all... Um, According to him, oh well, he, he puts together the charter of cities, so they're all uh, at one point were independent states that like warred with each other, and they all have their own uh, symbolism. And um, uh, there's a good quote here. Do you want to read this? I trust that very few of you, at least, I need dwell on the sublime origins of these legends. The very names of your boroughs bear witness to them. So long as Hammersmith is called Hammersmith, its people will live in the shadow of that primal hero, the blacksmith, who led the democracy of the Broadway into battle, till he drove the chivalry of Kensington before him, and overthrew them at that place which, in honor of the best blood of the defeated aristocracy, is still called Kensington Gore. And so on. Yeah, he creates a whole mythos... And I mean, it's funny because this is taking place in London, which really does have thousands of years of history. So I almost feel like um, 
you know, it doesn't come across as much to a non-UK reader uh, because for all we know, this could be true, right? <laughs> but if you don't know the history of London, but it's the equivalent of saying, you know, well, uh, those of you in uh, in Manhattan will remember the great battle between the Manhattanites and the Brooklynites where, uh, you know, uh, the, the Red Hook Republic declared it's you know it's it's talking about it's it's talking about these just random neighborhoods as if they were you know glorious ancient uh kingdoms with their own traditions and so forth and, uh yeah and all the uh all the weird names are like uh symbolic of some actual literal thing that right. existed so yeah um yeah. And later like on they Kensing have knightsbridge and there's uh an actual knight on a bridge right and the Kensington um, comes and, from... And it would be like uh, if uh, Yellowknife in, in Canada was actually like there was a yellow knife. Right. Know? Well, I mean, I think Yellowknife was actually named after a minor gold rush that came there and that the knife discovered some gold in the river. So it's actually oh, okay. more or less accurate, I think. I could be okay, wrong. Okay, never not. mind. But... I, I know nothing about the history of my own country. Sorry. <laughs> well, I don't know Yellowknife. No, I could be wrong too. But I, I always got the impression that's what it was. I mean... To be fair, a lot but of like, like medicine hat. Yeah, we, we have a lot of silly names in this country. That's right. Um, I mean, t they do tend to be named after something that happened there. That <laughs> it's usually pretty straightforward. But it's true. But that. But yeah, it's 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 the fact that he gives it a, a this ancient historical uh, backdrop that goes back hundreds of years is the part that makes it silly. And then he makes them all dress in their ancient quote ancient livery uh, with you know sort of a medieval style to everything there'd be the burgers and they have to be accompanied by uh trumpeters and right <laughs> and he talks and about how he made a random things. yeah he made a random like shopkeeper the, the 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 burger of you know whatever uh borough it is and and uh i think it's provo yeah, sorry, the Provo. Um, and then he says he complains that it's annoying to have his heralds following him around everywhere because he can't get any work done and like all that kind of nonsense. And of course, um, so Quinn knows this is ridiculous. That's why he's doing it. He's he's having a he's having a big laugh about it. Uh, he thinks it's the funniest oh, it, thing in the it, world. I just want to uh, inject uh, that quote that Adam read earlier was actually the initial inspiration, uh, according to Neil Gaiman, for the novel Neverwhere. Mm. Uh, and you can see a lot of that in it with the uh, uh, place names taken literally. There's even a, a Knight's Bridge scene in the, I recall, in the miniseries. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, he, it, he does it all based on weird puns, essentially, and, and says, you know, if you go to Knight's Bridge, if you go to Earl's Court, there's literally an Earl who has a court in a subway uh, yeah. under the, go, traveling under the city and, um, uh, there's one or two other things like that that are based on well-known neighborhoods and subway stops in London, and he's sort of taken them into a fantastical level. So it's a bit like that. I, I always said if this novel was written, you know, nowadays, um, not Notting Hill, um, it would be essentially uh, a guy who turns the city into a giant Dungeons and Dragons game, <laughs> or or I don't know, a, a board game anyway. Um, where he puts everyone in charge of, you know, and everyone's miserable. Uh, but then what happens is that 10 years later, um, as they're talking oh, about... Oh, uh, sorry, I I had one more. Sorry. Go ahead. Um, a lot of this also reminds me of uh, a lot of um, modern British comic writers like uh, Grant Morrison and Alan Moore often have, like, uh, uh, mystical aspects to cities. Like, uh, early on in um, uh, The Invisibles... Um, 
they go through the the true you know London is Luan Dun, the city of the moon, mm. which is an actual myth, but you know, right? It's probably not the real title, but yeah, uh, the real origin of the word London, but mm-hmm. yeah. Um, so there's like a mystic aspect underground of of what these cities sort of represent. Right. Oh, also, that um, reminds me. Come to think of it, uh, Hawksmore from the uh, Authority comics. He's the sort of god of cities. Right. Um, well, there's a um, there's a legend which got I think referenced in. Um, from hell, um, where that Bodisha, I believe that's how it's pronounced, who was a yeah the the yeah what was she the Celtic queen of Britain? She yeah, was a, something like that. She was a warrior queen. She was a warrior queen. Yeah, yeah, and she I believe she fought the Romans. Um, and there's a a legend that she's buried somewhere under uh like the <laughs> one of the main train stations in England is actually around the site of where her burial tomb would have been. So somewhere oh, right. th- this played into Moore's um, uh, League of Extraordinary Sen- uh, Gentlemen Century comic right. as well. Right. Uh, it's and also it the- that where Harry Potter got on the train, so that ties in. Right, and it's it's also the same place that was actually bombed in um, the London bombings uh, of, uh, I believe it was 2007, um, okay. when there was that terrorist attack on a, on a subway platform. Uh, so it, it, like it, it made it a place of mystical significance, essentially that there was some, and then of course, you know, just recently, a few years ago, they discovered the, the body of, uh, Richard the third under a parking lot, if you remember in England too. So right. it's got uh, that, that same idea. And in England, yeah, um, you know, these to places- bring it back to cyberpunk and it's weird that we keep doing that with this book, but it, it reminds me like the character of cities as like a, uh, a, a um, in cyberpunk, it's not so much a mystical thing, but the city is like an all-important thing. It's it's the environment that the characters live in, and this story, yeah. um, they sort of worship, or at least, um, uh, um, sorry, uh, Adam Wayne uh, sort of worships the city as a because he's never known anything else. Right. Well, let's t- let's talk about Adam Wayne. So that's that's the turning point of the novel, where um, ten years after all this has happened. Uh, the kid who he ran into on the street, the titular Napoleon of Notting Hill, um, shows up to the king, and there was a plan to build a uh, uh, a roadway, I believe, through an old building in uh, to make a larger road through Notting Hill. And um, uh, he shows up and basically says, "My my liege, I I I demand the the right to sort of defend my territory." And uh, Oberon Quinn starts laughing and going, oh, my God, this guy finally is playing along with my gay because everyone else has just been complaining and going along with it because he's the king, um, you know, but treating him like a mad king, basically. Um, but this guy comes forward and really plays it plays into it and says, oh, I must defend my my territory, my great lord. And as the conversation goes on. Quinn realizes that no, wait. He takes this a hundred percent seriously. Is uh, you know he's he's absolutely invested in the mythos that I've created as a joke. Uh, he thinks it's a hundred percent noble and serious, and that he's the uh, you know he's the defender of Notting Hill, and that he's this great knight uh, who has to defend. And again, there's a sort of aspect of it's the forces of progress rolling through my my quote country, but it's Notting Hill, which is apparently a bit of a dingy suburb of, of London. It's not a particularly glamorous or interesting place, uh, but it's all he's ever known. And as a result, it's something he's willing to die for. And literally London ends up going to war uh, over Notting Hill. That's, that's, that's what the, that's what the novel, you know, turns into. 
Uh, because uh, yeah, that scene was really interesting with uh, Oberon just sort of realizing that, uh, holy crap, he takes this seriously. Yeah. Um, it sort of reminded me of um, uh, an old clip from John Oliver on The Daily Show begging Donald Trump to run for president because it would be hilarious. Right. <laughs> and like, yes. you know, yeah. you can just imagine, you know, it dawning on him when, you know. Right. It's, the whole it's thing like happened. Some, and, and now, I mean, that's not, that's, that's almost a different situation though, because in that case it was sort of, if, yeah, but you're right. It's, it's sort of, oh, this would be hilarious if it happened. And then it happens. It's not hilarious at all. Um, but yeah. it, it shows how when you produce something, you know, ironically or, or ridiculously very eventually, you know, it, it gets taken seriously. I've heard it. I've heard it said, I don't know if it's true that you're uh your, the subconscious part of your brain does not understand the concept of irony and doesn't understand, you know, <laughs> that that level of mockery, essentially. So if you keep presenting it with an idea, your subconscious will start to assimilate it and accept it. Uh, as Kurt Vonnegut... Yeah, that's the theory of how uh, Flat Earth has become so popular. Right. Theory. Yeah. There, there's a quote from uh, Kurt Vonnegut in Mother Night. He says... Um, you know, we are what we pretend to be, so we must be careful what we pretend to be. Um, I think that's that applies here. <laughs> it's the idea of you know, once you do something, no matter you can't you can't put quote marks around something. The quote marks will fade away eventually, uh, and that's what yeah. happened here. This guy Adam Wayne has become a you know a religious fat, fanatic. This old like he's this very you know he's this wonderful he's he's a Don Quixote figure essentially. Uh, it's the same oh, yeah, idea that, as Don Quixote, it where it's a, a ridiculous figure of of nonsense, you know. But he's because he's got something noble at the core, you know. The nobility emerges out of it, essentially. As you said, this turns into an actual war. He um, uh, he manages to convince people to to rise up and fight for this little borough of London. Right. The the battles which happen later on in the book are um, actually pretty brutal. Uh, they don't involve any guns because in because there's been no battles since the Nicaraguan thing and that's happened years ago. Um, so uh, the the fighting is with swords and spears and what have you. Um, but because um, nobody was you know expecting this sort of thing to happen. <laughs> but uh, otherwise, it really feels like uh, um, sort of urban warfare that we see nowadays in like uh, Iraq and whatnot. Right, exactly. Um, there's like strategies of getting around, you know, into alleyways and around, you know. Right, and um, it, and it and it's, it's sort of it, it's got the uh, you know the idea of well everything from the American Revolution to you know the Vietnam War where um, you know the people who who know the place uh, who who live there even though they're less armed they've got the advantage because they know the terrain and they know. You know they can strike without warning, whereas the you know the armies marching down the street with heavy cavalry are can be at a disadvantage uh, if they don't know the uh, terrain. Yeah, there's one character who keeps insisting war is just a matter of mathematics. That yeah, uh, right. You have uh, um, just say the uh, the other side can fight for uh, as each man can fight as well as two men, so you get three men against him. You know that sort of thing. Right. Uh, but that's not really the case as we see in. Like you said, Vietnam and and other um, other areas where um, uh, it can be a matter of uh, you know people defending their homes versus people who are going in and don't really want to be there. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, it, it is definitely funny because if this book was written nowadays, you would say, well, okay, he's doing a commentary on globalization and imperialism and colonialism and all that kind of stuff. But it was written in 1904. It was written before the 20th century. Admittedly, the British Empire had been, and, the, and before that, the Spanish Empire had been going strong. And there'd been aspects of this. But I think you could argue that, um, well, I mean, the British Empire did have this sort of well, there's a cozy capitalist modernity at home while we're fighting, you know, to, quote, civilize these countries far away who are, you know, fighting for their land and their homes. Again, it's very obvious Chesterton's sympathies is with those people over the, the empire, as it were, which makes it ironic that he's such a booster for the British Empire, right? Like, it's it's mm -hmm. kind of weird. He's, he's sort of, he's almost a... Um, What's the word? Uh, he's almost a uh, uh, like a, a Rand Paul type or a Ron Paul type who's saying, you know, well, America's great, but we should stay home and not, you know, not get involved in other people's politics. Right. That's mm -hmm. almost the, the conclusion to draw. Uh, yeah, there, there is a bit of uh, there is a bit of that, especially um, um, like I said, some of the nationalism is nationalism is uncomfortable. But I also um, recognize that some nationalism like the nationalism of getting an empire out of your home is actually right. very necessary for for right. um, marginalized uh, cultures. Yeah, it's he takes the like I say he takes the na his own national there's a there's a I don't I couldn't find the exact quote but there's another Chesterton quote from one of his nonfiction books where he says um, you know we might describe something that we have a love for uh, and there's an obvious reason that we love it. Um, you know, because, you know, we love this guy because he's our friend, because we came up together and we shared experiences and so forth. Uh, but then you have something like your family, your mother, for instance, who you love because she's your mother. And that's just the person who happened to give birth to you. Or, and then he said to your country, which you love because it's the country you live in. And some people criticize that by saying, well, but you could have been born anywhere. You just happen to love this country because it's where you were born. So there's no logic to that love. And Chesterton said, well, you know, my response to that is that's the most powerful kind of love there is, the, the love for something that doesn't have a, a logic or a reason to it. Uh, it. You love it because it's your own, um, not because you know that circumstances could have changed it completely, of course, uh, but but you still love it anyway, because even though you have, you ha you can't explain why you love it you just do uh that's obviously a factor in this novel as well and i mean he more or less says this adam wayne more or less says the same thing about notting hill uh that it's his you know it's it's the place that i love because it's where i grew up it's where i fell in love it's it's been my home this entire life as you say adam wayne never gets out of the city he never has a chance to experience anything but notting hill in his life uh and therefore it's a place that must be defended you know Whereas someone else might just say, yeah, sure, you know, knock down that building. It doesn't matter. We've got to put a road through. He says, no, you know, it's 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 what I, it's what I am. It's my place in life. And it's meant to be a bit ridiculous that, I, <laughs> that I'm so attached to this small suburb. But and yet it's something that I love and that I'll passionately defend. And that makes me noble and wonderful because I have that love, essentially. Yeah, there's an interesting uh, part where we uh, read some of Adam's Adam Wayne's poetry right. that he wrote before he started all of this, um, and um, it describes you know uh, 
other poets will uh, describe the beauty of a city by comparing it to the country, or the beauty of, of a person, or the beauty of a concept by comparing it to nature, or something like that. But um, uh, Wayne just uh, compares everything to the beauty of the city, or aspects of the city. So, like, the... Uh, the stars in the sky are as beautiful as a lamppost, you know? Right. And, yeah, the wind came around the corner as fast as a cab, he says at one point. And it's like, most people would compare the cab to being as fast as the wind. But to him, the yeah. stuff that's in the city is the nature. And if he's talking about nature, he's going to compare it to the stuff he knows, which is the city, right? Um, yeah. So it's, it, yeah, this uh, novel, it's it's very much Chesterton having all these sort of rich ideas that he's that he's packing into this story. Um, and yeah, um, as I said, on, on, on nationalism, revolutionary nationalism, mm -hmm. um, Michael Collins, the, uh, early 20th century Irish revolutionary mm -hmm. was reportedly a fan of this book. So that's, that's an interesting aspect. Yeah. So it's, it, it, and again, it's so funny because Chesterton would have defended the British empire, uh, you know, to his last breath and said, you know, it's great. Now it's possible, but again, reading this book, you kind of do feel like, well, maybe he would have sided with the Irish nationalists too, because they were, you know, they were, uh, yeah, I, I, I think in practice, I don't know if he ever wrote about it. Cause of course he was alive for the, a lot of the early troubles. Um, but, uh, I think that, um, he probably would have sided with the British empire despite what he wrote in this book. Uh, but it is funny, as I say, because he just takes nationalism to such an extent <laughs> to, to the, to its logic. He's willing to take his idea that, would be considered conservative, but he takes it to such an extent that it ends up, he ends up granting it to everyone else and saying, you know, you know, it's good to be nationalist, even if you're fighting the British empire, which is the nationalism that I defend. Right. So it's, it, you know, he, at least the, that's the thing about Chesterton. He's willing to take his ideas to their logical conclusions and, and grant that empathy to everyone else instead of trying to pretend that, you know, well, that's why the British Empire must conquer everyone else. And and the kind of people, he's, the modernists that he's making fun of, on the one hand, we might say, well, they were more progressive, maybe. But on the other hand, you know, there was a lot of arrogance in the Victorian mind, as it were, uh, as one might argue there is in our own society these days, uh, where they think they know best. And they even the ones who are trying to be, you know, good and advanced people and compassionate would often say, you know, well, we know better than everyone else. So we're going to make everyone else follow our rules. Um, and Chesterton actually is pushing back against that to an extent in the novel, you know, and, and in a lot of his other work, it's, uh, you know, it's worth commenting on, I think. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, so, and, uh, some of the battles are, are interesting because like you said, they're based on knowing the terrain. So at one mm -hmm. point they knock out the, the light posts, the lamppost, right. so that the enemy can't, uh, they don't know their way around and they're in complete darkness, so right. they get slaughtered. Right. <laughs> and then they, uh, the, I believe the, the, the master stroke is he seizes the waterworks at one point at the, yeah. at the conclusion, right? Uh, yeah, and he threatens to waterworks? flood everyone. Yeah, uh, he threatens to flood everyone else if they don't uh, give in to their demands, which is just leave us alone. Right. And the, and there and um, there you go. It's almost a, it's almost it's almost a foreshadowing of terrorism. If you want to get technical about that, it's like do what we say. You know, if if you you know if if or mutually assured destruction, if you like. I mean, on mm -hmm. a very low scale, but it's kind of like yeah, we'll you know we'll destroy it. We're, we're I I love it so much. I'm willing to oh, destroy uh, it. Oh, this novel is dedicated to the brave Mujahideen fighters <laughs> of Afghanistan. Essentially, yes, it's that. 
you know, that's actually... Oh, uh, for those who don't know, that's that's uh, the original ending to Rocky Three had a... Um, uh, or was it Rocky Three? Yeah. R- Rambo okay, Three. Yeah. La- yeah. Sorry, Rambo. Sorry. Not Rocky. Rocky. <laughs> not, but not, a boxer. No. Um, uh, Rambo Three um, is set in Afghanistan, and he fights alongside forces that would eventually become the Taliban. Right. The original ending credit uh said it was dedicated to the mujahideen yeah so it's it's pretty and it's funny because that's another example of the same thing that i'm talking about where you know your own nationalism when you extend it to other people you end up basically defending people who are fighting your own imperialism basically so that's exactly the same thing they said oh yeah the mujahideen are great in that case they were fighting the soviets which is why they were and you know it, it was funny because it's a jingoistic uh, Reagan era uh, gung ho idea, but it's turned around after you know a few decades into whoa those aren't our here those aren't our friends at all why are we supporting them so that's the irony um, there. But uh, it, it's also interesting that um, uh, Adam Wayne uh, his demands are just to be uh, are for their own independence, not for um, right. Uh, he says we won't conquer you like you tried to conquer us. Mm-hmm. And that, that's interesting, the way of a lot of um, um, uh, sort yeah. of native um, pushback against oppression um, right. uh, is talked is talked about, you know, like, uh, mm-hmm. we don't want to take your land, we just want our own, you know. Right, exactly. And again, that's, now, clearly Chesterton was reacting, and, and again, he's in the weird position where he's, as a booster of the Queen and, and England, he's not going to say down with the British Empire, but he's essentially saying, yeah, the British Empire should leave everyone else alone and let them have their own country. <laughs> That's a much better thing. But I know that Chesterton didn't like revolutionaries much either. Uh, if we get, we're, we're hoping to eventually maybe do the Father Brown stories. And uh, he, um, he definitely has some sort of contempt for, you know, socialists and uh, revolutionaries and people who are, you know, trying to overturn the order from within uh, the European society. I guess he's more sympathetic to them if they're if they're fighting back against you know British imperialism outside uh, their society. So it's a bit of a weird world view in some ways for 1904. Um, but it's definitely one that is kind of amazingly farsighted in some ways. Um, um, also at the the coda at the end, which is actually a couple chapters long, like it's not really a coda. I yeah. misspoke there, but. Uh, that takes place 20 years in the future, and um, uh, Adam Wayne's ideas have spread all across the city, so all the boroughs are doing this, and they've, they're erecting statues to the heroes who fought in the Battle of Notting Hill against Notting Hill. And um, Notting Hill, the people are trying to get that taken down, and Adam Smith has a um, uh, speech about, you know, we won because we um, uh, we not only won the battle, but we actually sort of spread our ideas like we started something um mm-hmm. like uh, he compared them to athens or nazareth um and uh he said you know the least we can do is allow other people to have their own version of this mm-hmm. right but then um th- but then the battle ends up at the end uh you know it's funny because uh both adam and oberon end up on the on the side there's another battle at the end and they essentially say, well, we're on the wrong side this time, but we have to do it anyway because of nationalism, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that 
in a sense, you could call that a bit of a a bit of a uh, response to the earlier idea of well, then there's a time when it's bad. Basically, I'm just saying that uh, he, you know he's fighting. He's saying we were on the right side then, but you know now ten years later we're sort of on the wrong side and uh, fighting for Notting Hill because we're not fighting for to defend our our territory. We're fighting to uh, how, how did it go again? It's we're fighting for our territory, but we're you know we're fighting to. You know, we're, we're on the wrong. They acknowledge they're on the wrong side, basically, but they have to do it out of nationalism, right? Yeah. Um, and so that's kind of like you could say that's the response, that's the pushback. You know, that he it's not just nationalism is great. It's like, well, there is a dark side to nationalism where <laughs> you end up basically trying to expand and and infringe on other people's sovereignty, and uh, mm -hmm. this is what happens. Um, uh, so, but it ends with uh, with the speech uh, you started off the show with about mm -hmm. um, um, where Oberon admits that this whole thing was just a, a big, you know, practical joke, and um, right, uh, they sort of discuss uh, their their different worldviews where Oberon didn't take anything seriously, mm -hmm. and um, uh, Adam Wayne took everything seriously, right, and it um, it ends with them sort of walking off into the sunset together as like. They're two halves of the same of one man. So right. they're sort of well, they're and they're the dead. Two halves of at this point. They're basically ghosts <laughs> at the end. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, yeah. But uh, the idea yeah. is they're both sort of um, uh, they're not complete because they they represent the two sides of of human nature. Right. And he, and as I said in the quote that I that I used at the beginning, there it it's um, it, it's a very powerful message that I that I'm actually finding very I find very. Uh, very moving, which is the idea that, you know, if you're handed something as a joke and you take it seriously, uh, you've lent it nobility and dignity, um, no matter how ridiculous it was, that there's actually a, again, that's the, that's the Don Quixote thing, right? Like the idea of a, mm -hmm. a someone who, you know, who is, who's ridiculous, but because they have that in, inherent nobility, that they'll invest anything with nobility. And, and that's, in many ways, the point of the novel is it doesn't matter what you invest with that nobility, it's the the nobility itself that's important. But you have to attach it to something. Um, yeah. and, and this is Adam Wayne attached it to a, a neighborhood in Notting Hill. But, but I mean, in a sense, Oberon Quinn is almost a godlike figure because he's just sort of, I created, uh, <laughs> I created the system as a joke and you took it seriously and made me go, wow, uh, you guys are cool, <laughs> basically. Um, um. Yeah, what you said about uh, infusing something with meaning. Uh, again, back to Alan Moore. He has uh, he worships the uh, snake god. Uh, what is it? Addison? Glycus. Glycon. Uh, Glycon. Yeah. Sorry, no, no, Glycon. Yeah, sorry, I was thinking of the the a completely different as completely different magic thing. Sorry, but yeah, um, and he admits that this was just a fraudulent puppet that was created right. in Roman times. You know, as a as a as a scam. But uh, and it, but he says it doesn't matter because the it's the act of worshiping that matters. Yeah, yeah. I may not. not I'm not claiming. Right. I may not be an expert on you know the occult or the spiritual, but I get the impression that's one of the that's an idea of you know magic, as it were, uh, as it's modern day practice. It's not about you know the thing itself. It's about investing it with meaning. Um, yeah, that's why uh, say Lovecraft deities are. Are popular gods to pray to, even though they were yeah. made up by a, right. a weirdo in yes, and Providence or whatever. Alistair Crowley, who we'll be talking about in a little bit, uh, had some of the same thing, where he 
I mean, he basically created a god who he started praying to. Uh, but yeah, it's it's that kind of like you create your rituals and you adhere to them. You don't have to believe in them. It's not about belief. It's about investing it with meaning and, you know, transforming yourself, essentially. But that's getting a little yeah. mystical and Chesterton wouldn't have approved <laughs> of this kind of thing. But uh, um, but that's... No, but I mean, it's there. Like, it's... Um... Mm -hmm. Like whether he intended it or not, this is um, right. This is a reading that you can make reasonably. Uh, I mentioned Vonnegut. Uh, if you, have you ever read *Cat's Cradle*? Do you know that one? Yeah. Yeah. If you remember, they they created a religion that they knew was nonsense to start with. Oh right. Yeah. yeah. Um, and and even the the guy who was created to be the demonic figure of uh, the Balkanist religion. Um, you know, he was a Bacchanist. <laughs> he was like, I'm yeah. doing my part in this religion by being the bad guy. But when I die, I want to be, you know, I want the ceremonial rites to be Bacchanist because I still worship him. I mean, though I'm supposed yeah. to be the enemy and, you know, we know it's a made up religion, but it still has a lot of, uh, it's what we believe in and it's gives us power in that sense. So, and that also ties in because it was a nationalistic religion. So, that's, right. that's interesting as well. Yeah, exactly. It ties a, into this. It's a sort of there has to be specificity, so you may as well be specific to the things you've been given that you like or that you want to cling to. I mean, there has to be also the the flip side of that is you have to be free to reject something that was imposed on you if you legitimately don't like it, right? Um, mm -hmm. and that's what a lot of people get into when it comes to tradition versus modernity. It's like, well, I don't want to be stuck with this, uh, particular, you know, with, the, with this formalism, I want, you know, to make my own way in the world, but then you, you, you find your own specificity in something else. Right. Anyway, getting a little, uh, <laughs> getting a little philosophical there, but, um, I think we're at the end here. Uh, well, that's it from us here on What Mad Universe. We're Adam Prosser, the cynic to whom everything is a joke, and Philip Rice, the fanatic to whom nothing is. Uh, we want to give special thanks to Alex Ross, the alphabetically chosen king, and the theme song was by Jack Fierick, former leader of the Nicaraguan Revolution. Uh, until next time, we'll uh, see you around the neighborhood. Take care. <laughs>